Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. Pathology informatics is becoming an ever-expanding field. Along with that is the analysis of the utilization of laboratory tests, both from an economic standpoint and from an ethical standpoint. My guest today is Dr. Brian Jackson. Dr. Jackson is a pathologist and the host of the Lab Mind podcast. Today, we'll talk about that podcast as well as his work in pathology informatics. Then we'll talk about ethics as it applies to laboratory testing and corporate social responsibility in healthcare. All right, here's Dr. Brian Jackson. Now, I wanted to start back in college for you because you have a BA in mathematics. And I wanted to talk about this a little bit because I think it is relevant to what you would later do and what you're doing now. So uh, let's start there now. At the time uh, in mathematics, what was it that you intended to do with this degree? I had no idea other than become a mathematician. <laughs> but I have to go back a little bit. So okay, uh, for me, I, I grew up with an older brother who was a math prodigy, and I always felt really competitive with him trying to match his accomplishments in school. And although I can't say that I succeeded at that, it did make me pretty good at math just because I was paying a lot of attention to it. So, I was, so in my math classes growing up, I was always the smartest one in the room. So it just seemed obvious that, you know, that that would be the career choice for me. Okay. Freshman year of college, I, I started off at, at Harvard on a Navy ROTC scholarship. It's another long story, but, but basically my, my mom said there was no way she was paying the exorbitant $12,000 a year tuition when there's a perfectly good state school in town. But, you know, Harvard was the, the first time that I was not the smartest one in the room in my math class. I, you know, I signed up for freshman honors math and it was a struggle. It was a really hard class. And I, you know, I made it through and, and learned an enormous amount, but it was, it was a, a useful check to my ego at the time. And it was where I, I started to think, well, maybe choosing a career based on where you can be the best in the world isn't really a good idea unless you're someone like Einstein where you really are the best in the world. And otherwise I need to <laughs> right. you know, come up with something more, I don't know, more thoughtful. Fast forward a little bit. I transferred to the University of Utah because I wasn't sure the Navy was a great career path for me either, although I sometimes regretted that. Um, but a couple of things happened. Uh, my My other older brother uh, was in medical school and seemed to be enjoying it, having a good experience. And then I got a part-time job working for my, my mathematician brother's former boss who ran the informatics department for Intermountain Healthcare. So I'd be going to the University of Utah during the day and you know taking my math classes, but also really enjoying biology and chemistry. And then heading up to the hospital for my part-time job where I would you know, doing these, you know, creative research projects with, you know, doctors and nurses and technicians and, and others. The informatics director there uh, really was my most important early research mentor. And I saw how he used his, not just his engineering knowledge, but, but really his, his people skills to, to set up interesting collaborations. And I thought, you know, healthcare is just a really cool place where you have all these really smart, dedicated people who want to do the right thing. And they work together on, on interesting projects. And then I 
go back to school and see my math professors sitting in their offices all day with their heads down working on math problems. And I thought, you know, no competition. I want to go into healthcare. That's interesting. Is somebody outside of healthcare that inspired you to, to get into healthcare? I, I don't regret the math background, though. Um, I'm, I'm glad that I, that I studied math and I went back and did some more, you know, in graduate school years later. But what math trains you to do is think really abstractly, both quantitative and qualitatively, but in terms of, you know, models and, and then taking those models to their extremes and seeing how they behave in theory and, and all of that really abstract, you know, modeling kind of thinking has been enormously helpful throughout my career as well. Yeah, I can understand that. So that's what inspired you then to go to medical school. I'm curious then what got you interested in pathology? Uh, okay, so you've got a pathology audience. So I think it's an easy right. it's an easy sell to say that, well, pathology is really interesting. And it is. It, it genuinely is. For me, though, my, my reasons were a little more idiosyncratic. I had gone into medicine in order to get into healthcare. So... I, I really admire everyone who goes into medicine to take care of patients, and that's the right reason for most people. But for me, it was a way to get into this really interesting field of healthcare, and I wanted to go broad, and I wanted to have an impact on you know healthcare systems and processes and and other things. So um, you know, taking care of patients eight hours a day, well, it would be personally fulfilling. You know, it would be that much less time to to spend working on the healthcare system. So pathology seemed like about the broadest specialty I could get into where I would be you know, playing a role at a more abstracted level. Um, again, I don't know if it was the right decision. There are trade-offs to that, but, mm-hmm. um, but you know, I love my residency. Okay. And did you know, the fact that pathology has a lot of data and a lot of you know, statistics with testing and things like that, did that sort of appeal to the math side of you? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You have an interest in pathology informatics, which, you know, makes sense. That's the kind of the intersection of pathology and math right there. And I have to think this, this was the kind of deciding factor in choosing pathology, right? I mean, through uh, medical school, was that what, what you were always looking at? Well, informatics was what got me into healthcare and medical school. So, so yeah, naturally... It was something I was, I was keeping an eye on. I did during medical school. I did try to sort of mentally experiment with, with thinking more broadly, and I did consider other specialties, um, but I just kept oh, like, coming like, back to like which ones? Emergency medicine was certainly the glamour field at the time because mm-hmm. uh, ER was the hot show on TV back in the nineties. Right. It probably wouldn't have been a great fit for me for a lot of reasons or internal medicine or a surgical subspecialty or pediatrics. And I, I really enjoyed psychiatry, uh, but that just felt like it was taking me outside the mainstream of healthcare. So pathology um, really beckoned. So to your, to your informatics question, to some extent, I sort of put informatics on a shelf for a couple of years while I was just focusing on, on learning medicine and trying to figure out what kind of a doctor I wanted to be. But I probably always knew in the back of my head that I was going to come back to informatics. And when when I started interviewing for residency, there was a pathologist informaticist by the name of Ed Schultz, um, who was at uh, Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. And I met him during my interviews. And uh, that was one of the reasons I was really excited about 
ranking Dartmouth at the top of my list and ended up going there. And, and so he became a, you know, a, a valuable mentor for me um, to sort of you know, steer me into you know, some of the, the informatics directions that I could go. Okay. Uh, now I want to kind of talk about a, a little bit about those uh, directions, some of the research interests that you have. And, and the first one is physician utilization of laboratory tests. And now did you, is this where you became interested in this area or, or how did that happen? What was the inspiration for that? So there were a couple of pieces to that. So it, at Dartmouth, first of all, some listeners might be aware that that they have what was probably the first world-class uh, health services research uh, center at the, the Dartmouth Medical Center, or Dartmouth Medical School, rather. And one of my mentors during residency, who was the, uh, Jim Obishan, is the residency director at the time. Um, he's a you know, transfusion medicine doctor, uh, recently retired. But he he got me into cost effectiveness research, but that sort of pulled me into learning more about the, the health services research uh, going on at at Dartmouth, and a lot of that is around just studying variation. You know, Jim, or rather Jack Wenberg is the you know, acknowledged as sort of the the father of all of this. There's enormous variation in medicine. Uh, the fact that we treat medicine as a as a profession where physicians are given enormous amount of autonomy to make decisions. And anytime you have that kind of a setting where you know it's very individually self-regulated, you're going to see a lot of a variation. But most of that variation is not good for patients. Now it's really only good for patients if it's variation based on patient factors, but most uh, variation medicines not based on patient factors. It's based on, on doctors practicing the way that makes sense to them, which might be related to where they trained or, or the way their peers were, or even their personality. Some doctors are more aggressive than others. And none of this variation is, is good for patients. So I, I definitely was thinking about, you know, ways you could apply that to, to the laboratory you know, sort of side story. I, I think it's probably safe to tell this story. It's been a lot of years and I think he's retired now, but you know, Dr. Schultz, who was my, my early informatics mentor at Dartmouth, um, actually did a study of laboratory utilization at the Dartmouth Medical Center, shared the data with the medical staff. It turned out that the chair of one of the major departments was at the very top of the list in overutilization of laboratory tests. Uh, that got him in a lot of political hot water. Um, so that was an early lesson too, but it but it also sort of intrigued me about the possibilities of studying lab utilization. So fast forward a few years, there were a couple of years between residency and ending up at AREP Laboratories. But but when I when I took my first sort of permanent long time job at the University of Utah in AREP, my primary mentor then was at Ashwood. Um, who was then the, the chief medical officer at AREP, but he was really an informatics guy. And he had started a test utilization analysis program a few years earlier. Uh, he called it ATOP, so for analyzing test ordering patterns. But it, it was one of the first things that, that caught my attention at AREP. And I thought, you know, I could really run with this and this could become a big deal. And uh, really, I had a lot of fun with it. Now, you mentioned variation earlier. Now, 
are you talking about like the approach that the, say the physician physician takes in ordering tests or, you know, cause you hear a lot about decision trees and, and things like that. Is that the kind of variation? Yeah, I think that's the um, sort of the upstream part of it that uh, different doctors have different mental models of how to, to work things up. It's not just initial diagnosis. It's also monitoring. It's also screening. It's, it's all the different ways that we use lab tests. But different doctors have different mental models and different sort of personal preferences for how they, they do things. A lot of it's not conscious. A lot of it's just sort of ingrained habit. And a lot of times doctors assume that everyone else is practicing the way they are, even though that's not always true. Okay, that makes sense. And then, like you said, this variation kind of comes from from their training. So that's always been my my sort of baseline hypothesis that, okay. that you practice the way that you got used to during training, or um, and that could extend to you know the, the things that you see your colleagues doing nearby. So, in order to standardize or, or to get rid of that variation, you'd have to standardize essentially the, the training as well. Uh, potentially, although I think there are ways to, to put mechanisms in place, um, all along the way. Mm-hmm. Standardization, let me, let me acknowledge, um, standardization is a tricky thing too in healthcare. Uh, patients are not standard. Uh, disease presentations are not standard. Right. Uh, when you try to completely, you know, do sort of the factory model, uh, of everyone practicing the same way you you hit these trade-offs where where the patient can feel like a cog in a machine and that's not not good either i, I don't want to sort of name names of institutions that i think do this but i there are some institutions that are pretty famous for you know healthcare quality and safety and they've achieved that through standardizations but i've i've seen personally through family members how that standardization can make the f- patient feel like a cog in a big machine where you don't really have a lot of, you know, autonomy about, you know, the, the way you want your healthcare delivered. Mm-hmm. So I think there, there are definitely some trade-offs there and some balances. We need to figure out how to standardize the physician side while completely, per- and let me repeat that, while completely personalizing the patient side. And that's a hard problem. No one's figured that one out yet completely. Right, right. You know, in one of the uh, papers that I read that you co-authored, it introduced a term called potentially unnecessary repeat testing. Can you can you explain what this is and what kind of impact that might have? So I have to do a shout out to Kyle Hewitt, who is now on the medical affairs team for Biofire Diagnostics. But he was working for AREP Laboratories at the time, working on a master's degree, and and that paper was actually, you know, his master's thesis. So Kyle was pursuing this question as a graduate student about about repeat testing, which was something that, as best I could tell, hadn't been studied before. So I thought it was a really interesting area to mm-hmm. uh, to work with him on. And it, it, it's sort of this idea that you know how often should you run a test? Yeah. So say, let's say you've, a patient's diabetic. They they may do their finger sticks a certain number of times a day and in order to to get a good feel for how good their their glucose control is and that that's sort of logical and empirical but how often should you run a hemoglobin a1c how often should you check their creatinine Mm -hmm. um there are there may be some guidelines 
there, there actually are some guidelines from the diabetes associations because diabetes is just such a guideline disease. But for the vast majority of lab tests, there's no there's no guidance out there in the form of you know professional society guidelines or whatever to tell you how often you should you know repeat a test if you're monitoring. It's not just testing. I mean, this is the same thing you see in in the rest of healthcare. So back to Dartmouth and the Health Services Research Group, Jack Wenberg used to talk about doctor office visits, and he would say that the that by far the strongest statistical prediction or strongest statistical predictor of when your doctor will set your follow-up appointment is how full their calendar is. So think about that for a minute. Say you're a, you're a cardiology patient going to a cardiologist. Um, if the cardiologist is relatively new in practice, doesn't have you know a full set of patients, uh, they're gonna ask to see you every three months because it helps keep their, their schedule full. If you're, you know, in Salt Lake City trying to see a dermatologist, the, you know, we've got a dermatologist shortage. So the dermatologist is going to schedule your repeat every two years because they just can't fit you in sooner. Um, it's completely irrational from the medical standpoint, but it makes complete economic sense from a doctor practice standpoint. So I'm, I'm not saying that doctors order lab tests consciously for their economic benefit or, or to keep them busy. Um, if they're not busy enough or whatever, but but the truth is that the, the the intervals between you know monitoring tests are are not really well worked out um, at a guideline level for other than for a few diseases like like um, diabetes. Okay, yeah, that kind of seems like the wrong uh, priority then to you know reschedule patients or schedule follow up patients based on the you know how full your schedule is. Right. And figuring out what the patient actually needs is, is a genuinely hard problem. And this gets into the whole personalized medicine thing. So at AREP, we've, um, we've been studying this for a while. Our, uh, our medical editing team has had a project together with our, our consulting group um, to try to come up with a, a library of, of suggested repeat intervals for tests. It, it all started with, with Kyle's master's project. But the, the challenge we run into is the whole personalization issue. Because anytime you try to, to write out some guidance to say this test makes sense to repeat approximately this often, you end up with a really, really long list of exceptions and caveats. So the best we can do in a lot of cases is look at the, you know, sort of the, go back to first principles, look at the biology of whatever it is you're trying to measure and how fast it changes. It doesn't make sense to check your TSH daily because TSH takes weeks to normalize following a therapy change. It doesn't make sense to, change, to check your LDL daily because again, just doesn't change that fast in response to either diet or therapy. So, so there's some things like that, just going back to the basic biology and chemistry that, that can provide some a bit of guidance as to when it makes sense to repeat a test. But beyond that, in most cases, it really comes down to the patient situation, what's going on with their disease, what's changed with them, and what are you doing with them therapeutically. And it becomes really hard to construct you know, useful guidance, at least in the, the prescriptive you know, decision tree kind of sense. So I kind of the you know, it affects the sort of medical and scientific aspect of it. There's got to be an, an economic, uh, a big economic uh, impact to this as well, right? 
Yeah, the economics are are sort of insidious. When you when you talk about uh, you know studying test utilization and particularly overutilization, although I don't doubt that there's you know underutilization and misutilization, they're just a little harder to study. The the obvious economic impact has to do with the cost of the testing, and it's not zero. It's a lot less than most people think, and it's a lot less than most doctors think. In fact, the when when patients get soaked for high testing bills, you know there there have been news stories of this. Elizabeth Rosenthal is a a, a physician journalist, uh, writes for the New York Times. She's also the editor of Kaiser Health News. Uh, she's written a lot about you know patient economic impact, including when you get massive bills for lab tests, but most of those have nothing to do with the cost of the testing. It has everything to do with the the way that uh, medical services get massively upcharged by the you know the clinic or the hospital or in some cases the laboratory. Yeah, so so the cost of doing lab tests if you don't need those lab tests is certainly going to be a drag on the system, but it's relatively small compared to all the other expensive stuff that we do in healthcare. Um, I've always been convinced that the the biggest economic, I should say the biggest negative economic impact of running a test when you don't need the test would be what you do with that information and the other overuse of services that result from a test that you didn't need in the first place. I guess I should give an example here. Oh yeah, please. Right. Um, okay, so I'll I'll pick my father who you know passed away a few years ago from from heart disease. And the the reason it's relevant to mention his disease was that he, while he was alive, saw a urologist for urinary tract symptoms uh, that are very common in men over the age of 50. Uh, many listeners will be familiar with that. Um, and the urologist ran a PSA on my father, and it was not outrageously high. It was about where it would be expected given, you know, sort of the typical you know, prostatic hyperplasia that you see at that age. Mm. Um, but it was just high enough that the urologist insisted on doing a biopsy, which fortunately came back negative. So the urologist did a, a TERP procedure, which uh, was very beneficial to my dad in terms of his symptoms. Uh, but following the procedure, the urologist wanted to do a repeat T at PSA which was completely medically unnecessary, but this is what some urologists do. And the PSA came back quite low because the procedure had removed so much prostate tissue. At which point the urologist wanted to run a PSA again a few months later to, and just monitor him serially the rest of his life. And on one of those repeat uh, tests, the, the value was up a little bit from the previous one and the, the urologist told my dad he needed to do a biopsy. At this point, my dad finally called me up and told me what was going on. And I said, dad, why are you going back to the urologist? You don't need that anymore. You know, there's none of the, neither the biopsy nor the, the little chips that were taken out during the procedure showed any sign of cancer. You know, unless you have new symptoms or, or some other reason to go back, do not go back to the urologist. But essentially, this urologist was using PSA testing as a way to drive biopsies, which are incredibly remunerative. And I realize some pathologists listening to this podcast may be offended at what I'm saying because 
hey, they're the ones reading the biopsies and they do pick up cancers. But but I'm of the opinion you shouldn't get a biopsy unless there's a really good reason for that biopsy. In the case of prostate biopsies, um, sort of an aside to that is that they are not zero risk, at least the way they've been done historically as a transrectal uh, procedure, because there's a real risk of infection. And back when my dad was was in this situation, um, they hadn't quite figured out how to do the transperineal biopsies yet. So my dad was put at risk anytime the urologist um, told him he needed a biopsy. Fortunately, my dad followed my advice. He never went back to the urologist again. He followed up with his internist mm-hmm. and his family doctor who monitored his heart disease, which was where his, that's, that's where his real health care needs were. So this brings up another point having to do with unnecessary testing or repeat testing, and that's the inconvenience to the patient. I mean, yeah, getting your blood drawn is not really that big of a deal, but you've got to go to the you know the blood draw center or to the hospital, the doctor's office, and like you said, with with the biopsies, there is a risk of infection and complications and things like that. So that's something to be aware of as well that the effect on the patient. Absolutely. And this is a really big area that, that needs a lot of future work. This whole idea of, of making testing more patient-centered. And a lot of that is making the, the specimen collection more patient-centered. I don't like getting my blood drawn. I think a lot of people don't like it. And uh, the fact that you have to you know, drive into a patient service center to have that done or if you're an inpatient, you might go get awakened early in the morning to have that done. Um, really, a lot more work needs to be done to make blood collection, you know, less impactful, or other specimen collection less less impactful physically and schedule wise on the patient. We need to figure out better ways to, you know, collect at home. So Elizabeth Holmes from Theranos really exploited this idea, even though she didn't have a technologic solution that actually worked. It was just a sales job. But but the reason that Theranos was so appealing was that she set up her company to be really, really patient-centric. And although I think it's fair for all of us to dismiss her as a, as a charlatan because she was, it's useful to pay attention to the one piece of her business model that really, really made sense, which was patient-centered laboratory medicine. And I think I think it will be possible in the future. Someone is going to figure out better ways of drawing blood and making the the testing process more patient friendly, and that's going to be an important thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What about uh, corporate social responsibility in healthcare? Because this is another one of your interests. So, can we explain what that is, and then why is that important in healthcare? Yeah. So. Um, uh, that's correct. This has really become my major uh, research interest over the past five years or so, and I've, I've really enjoyed getting into the whole ethics side of healthcare, and particularly the ethics side of healthcare as as sort of uh, reflected through the through the business lens. So some of this is just because of working at at ARUP. A lot of listeners may have. Maybe familiar with ARP, but if you're not, it's a you know a nonprofit enterprise of the University of Utah and its Department of Pathology, and it's a really interesting hybrid. It's it's a, a pretty large lab testing company with over four thousand employees serving hospitals around the country. So it's a pretty good sized testing business uh, competing with 
you know, competing with large for-profit publicly traded companies in that space and competing very successfully. On the other hand, it's also a, you know, a, an academic entity, uh, you know, a, a quote-unquote subsidiary of the University of Utah, although I don't know if subsidiary is technically the, the business word you're supposed to use there. And informally a nonprofit as well. So, it, so it really has you know strong cultural roots and, in academic medicine. At the same time that that we're operating in in this business space, so it's it it's been really really fun for me over the years in that environment to uh, to learn about business. I, I did a, a certificate program at the University of Utah's business school. They, they call it their mini MBA program. Um, okay. And I just had a blast, you know, learning about, you know, what did they teach in business school? And I started subscribing to Harvard Business Review and reading all those articles. So it was just a really fun intellectual exercise. Um, I think a lot of people in healthcare think of business as being the bean counters and they equate it with either accounting or sales and not, and I'm not saying either of those in a positive way because people have really negative impressions about what those two things are. But in truth, you know, business is a really interesting field of intellectual study. And, you know, a lot of smart, thoughtful people, you know, study business in business schools. And there's a lot you can learn there about, uh, about systems and, and ways of, of making things work, making human systems work. And there's a lot in, in medicine and pathology that we can learn from the academic business world. So in the course of doing that, you know, it, I, I sort of stumbled across this intersection of business ethics and and business, and it really caught my attention. I, I always felt, and I still believe uh, sincerely, that AREP is a fundamentally um, ethical uh, business uh, that, that puts the patient first. Um, I'll say that every business in healthcare says they put the patient first, but I don't always believe that. If you're a pharmaceutical company selling insulin and you keep increasing the price 10% a year uh, because you can, because it keeps your shareholders happy, mm -hmm. uh, but it means that patients are foregoing their insulin because they're rationing because they can't afford the copay, then is that pharmaceutical company really putting the patient first? And I would say absolutely not. Um, you know, Martin Shkreli may be the the epitome of this in the pricing games that he played uh, a few years ago with, you know, shooting up the price of this, you know, HIV generic drug from about a dollar a pill to about a thousand dollars a pill. Um, but let's face it, the full the whole pharmaceutical world plays that game in just a slightly milder way, and it's not good for patients. And you can see the same thing in the device world, but frankly, you see the same thing in the hospital world, both on the profit and the non-profit side. So we need to do a much better job of, of thinking about what it really means to put the patient first. I'm not saying that, that money is not relevant or important. Money is a resource that we have to have to do our jobs but we should be putting far more emphasis and far more of our intellectual energy into figuring out how to evolve our business models in ways that can remain profitable so that we can be sustainable, but that reduce the financial impact on the patient. And obviously the US is the worst country in the world for this in terms of, of pursuing business models that maximize revenue rather than business models that that focus more on making healthcare um, higher value. So, so you know, that, that's just the cost side of ethics. There's a lot more to, 
to ethics than just um, just the financial side. But um, yeah, it's been a really interesting area of study for me. As far as the social responsibility part, then like what from what I was reading, these are things like the the healthcare company should, you know, not only be providing care for patients, but also do some kind of social good. Now, are, are these things like, you know, you hear about a lot of companies going green and things like that. Is that is that what they're talking about? Yeah. So social responsibility in the business world is is definitely a field that, that I've been really intrigued by. So here here's my take on it. You know, I can't I can't claim the level of expertise of, of business school professors who study this full-time, but here's, here's my take. Corporate social responsibility years ago was thought of by a lot of people as how much charity a company does. And we see this all the time. Big companies donate a tiny portion of their profits to charity. They get PR value out of it. Right. They get... Uh, you know, board seats on the the local opera or art museum for their executives, which are fun because they get to go to these galas. It's all very self-serving the way most companies do charitable giving. So famously back around 1970, Milton Friedman, who was this really famous economist, uh, penned an op-ed in the New York Times where he said that companies should stop donating to charity and that the proper role of the company is to just focus on their own business and then the, the shareholders of that company uh, will make a lot of money and they can donate to charity. So it's a logical argument, mm-hmm. um, but it was used as a justification for an increased emphasis on what's referred to as shareholder capitalism. In other words, the, the only moral purpose of business is to make money and that money is somehow morally neutral and that that those who hold the money can then you know exercise their ethical uh, values by donating to charity or whatever. But it but it's a very narrow way of looking at the world. And um, I think a lot of people think that contributed to a lot of the excesses of the seventies and the eighties, and you know the movie Wall Street and greed is good. Oh and sure. It's, and, and glorifying the idea that that making money is somehow a a positive ethical thing when personally, I think it's really a neutral ethical thing, but starting, um, I would say in the nineties there, um, into the two thousands, um, I started seeing more written in the business literature on other ways to think of corporate social responsibility other than charitable giving. So the person to really give this credit for would be a professor by the name of, of R. Edward Freeman at the University of Virginia, who started using this term uh, stakeholder capitalism. And his the the idea is pretty elegant that that in any business you have multiple groups of stakeholders. Um, your owners, whoever has a financial interest in the company, is is obviously one of them, and we call them shareholders. But you also have your employees. Uh, you have your customers, you have the communities in which you operate. And all of those groups have a legitimate interest in how you run your business. And if you don't keep them happy, your business will be less sustainable. If you don't treat your employees well, they won't perform as well. If you are, say, a mining company and you strip mine for minerals, in a, at least if you do it in a developed country with with mature governmental structures, then you're going to end up with 
with fines and penalties. And that's the way that the, the communities and the in society will hold you in check. And again, if at least if you're operating in a part of the world where, where governments are highly functioning, then you know, things like corruption will get punished as well. So there, there are all these areas that are non-financial in nature that if you do them ethically and responsibly, you'll actually have more sustainability over the long term as a business. And, and this has been studied in the finance world of all places. Uh, it turns out that that big pension funds and other uh, investment companies that focus on long-term investments take a hard look at the ethical performance of the companies they invest in because they know that companies that are socially responsible, you know, they treat their their customers well, they uh, they obey the law, et cetera, et cetera. Those are going to be companies that will perform better over the long run, even if over the short run, they may not be as likely to have you know crazy outsized uh, financial returns. So that's sort of this this whole sort of stakeholder capitalism thing that that I'm finding really interesting. Yeah, that's that's interesting. You know, I was doing some reading about this stuff, and it seems like there is a lot more work to be done, and the implications for how that might change healthcare are. They're very fascinating. Yeah, absolutely a lot more work to be done. Mm-hmm. And one irony, I have to, to fit this in, but one irony that I see in the healthcare world is that most people go into healthcare, go into it for the right reasons because they genuinely want to do good things yeah. for patients and for society. So I, I don't want to call people's intent into question, but but I do think that that positive intent has a um I'm trying to think of the technical term for this but i i think it it gives us moral cover to not always do the right thing so you know for example you know a physician office who is you know profiteering off of its patients or a drug company who's profiteering by by doing things for patients that go beyond their medical needs and are really motivated by financial return I think a lot of that uh, gets moral cover by the by the idea that well, we we convince ourselves that we're doing the right thing for the patients because we're not really taking a hard look at the full impact, including the economic impact. I think a lot of scientists this this interview is going to get me into a lot of trouble, <laughs> frankly. But but scientists working for drug companies who are sincerely motivated by wanting to discover things that are beneficial. Um, may sort of delude themselves into thinking that their company is a good player when they're out bankrupting, you know, people left and right with with pricing games. And mm-hmm. a lot of the pricing games, frankly, are are about intellectual property games. But we don't need to get into all those details. But um, yeah, so I my the bottom line is, I think in healthcare we just need to take a really hard look at what we do and and look at the the true patient impact. And reassess whether our some of our business models are really in the patient's best interest or not, because a lot of them aren't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I completely agree. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Brian Jackson. We'll be right back. You've heard me talk about LabVine before, and this is an online learning platform for laboratory professionals where you can earn continuing education credit. 
And these are accredited by the Society of Medical Laboratory Technology of South Africa, as well as PACE in the US and the Royal College of Pathologists in the UK. I want to tell you about a new feature available on LabVine called the ConfLab. This is an opportunity for laboratory thought leaders, subject matter experts, and consultants to share their expertise with other lab professionals. And you can follow the link in the show notes to apply to be a ConfLab expert. Dress Med has been designing and manufacturing high-quality scrubs since 1980. The prices are affordable, the shipping is very fast, and the scrubs have lots of pockets, which I really like. I actually have several sets of these myself. So check out Dress Med by using the link in the show notes. You can sign up for their loyalty program for free and earn special offers and discounts. Now back to Dr. Brian Jackson on the People of Pathology podcast. Okay, I want to switch gears here a little bit. Kind of the big way that we kind of came in contact with each other is you're a podcaster as well. Um, you mentioned ARUP a few times. You host the Lab Mind podcast, which is run through ARUP. So I'm curious about the the story behind this. What like what was the initial idea for this podcast? And you know, you know, was it your idea or you know, how did you get involved? So it was my idea, and I wish I could tell you a you know, a compelling logical sort of you know innovation case or business case for for how I came up with this brilliant mm-hmm. idea to launch a podcast. Okay. Um but I, I I can't. I I just got hooked on podcasts and just like you probably I'm guessing yeah. you probably did as well. Yeah correct? that sounds very familiar. Yes. And you know it's this great medium uh and really flexible way of getting stories out and i there were just a lot of podcasters including you know radio pro long-standing radio programs like um you know fresh air mm-hmm. and terry gross who's still my my idol in terms of 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 interviewing i love fresh air yeah so i thought hey i want to do that and for this probably for the same reason that i've always fantasized about you know, being a full-time author, even though I'm not really that kind of a natural writer who <laughs> would be, be highly successful at at being an author for a career. But it but it but it seems glamorous to to be able to tell stories for your your whole life. But podcasting was an was a medium where you could do that much more flexibly and the barrier to entry was much lower. Didn't take you two years to write your first novel. You could just, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, record an hour interview and edit it down and and suddenly you're a podcaster did you have like experience as an interviewer before that because like for me i i did i had to learn as i was going along did you have the same experience Oh, i absolutely had to learn yes i um you know i i think back to my freshman year of of college and the writing class that i took that was taught by a journalist who made us go out and interview people and my first interviews were were horrible and made me think that I was a terrible interviewer and I should never go back to that again. So I, <laughs> yes, absolutely, I had to I had to learn a lot, uh, sort of on the spot, going through this. But again, I listened to a lot of Terry Gross. I listened to a lot of of other radio hosts and uh, and podcasters and sort of started paying closer attention to what seemed to work and what didn't seem to work. Um, so yeah, that's absolutely been a learning experience. Can you tell us, like, how do you go about choosing the topics and the and the guests for Lab Mind? 
So I would say there are a couple answers to that. One of the main drivers is to try to interview people who have interesting things to say, which sounds really obvious. But this was one of the things I learned very early on that that who you choose to be on your okay, this is going to sound self-serving because I'm on your podcast right now, but um <laughs> okay. But, <laughs> but but I'm sure you can relate to this. Who you get on the podcast makes all the difference because it's really their story that's coming out. Yeah. And and so finding people who have interesting stories to tell, um, who have done interesting things, and and particularly if they've been out there talking about them because they get um better expressing their ideas that way. I can, I can tell you about the one I did yesterday. Okay. Um, after four, uh, about 40 podcasts, it hit me that I had never interviewed anyone who represented the patient perspective, which is nuts, right? Because everything we do in the laboratory is for the benefit of patients. Uh, they should be front and center in, in all of our activities. And yet I'm doing this podcast on pathology and lab medicine where I'd never interviewed a patient. Mm-hmm. So through a, a connection at, at work at AUP through one of the, one of the writers there who had interviewed a woman with two children with a, a severe genetic metabolic uh, defect. This was a really impressive individual who, who told a really compelling story. So I invited her to be on the podcast and, and yeah, it was amazing. Now she's sort of a she's a professional patient advocate um, because of her the this disease that her two children inherited. Uh, she's gotten really involved in a disease foundation. She's the president of that of that uh, patient interest group and does a lot of advocacy and, and speaking about her disease. And so people like that are are the, are the best interview subjects, and they're incredibly easy in a certain way to interview because you just have to stay out of their way uh, while they tell their story. That's interesting. I I have to say I've never had a someone from the patient side of things on on this podcast either. I well, your podcast name is, is, is sort of suggests that you're going to interview people who work in pathology. Sure. Um, I I intentionally chose a really really ambiguous title of of Lab Mind. Okay, I have to give credit here. Uh, the 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 name Lab Mind, the logo that we use, all of that came out of our our marketing department. I'm I'm just not a creative that way. So I've, I've, I've been um, advantaged to be able to work with a lot of you know, brilliant creative people. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I, I also, before we get too far from, the, from your question about choosing people to interview, the other individual I need to call out is uh, Shri Peterson, who produces LabMind. She, for many years, has run education programs for ARUP. Um, like when we, when we do conferences or, you know, CME programs, other kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, I found it creatively extremely helpful to work with a partner on these things. And so really Sheree and I sort of share responsibility for, uh, plotting out who to, whom to invite for interviews. So some people have been my idea to invite them. Some have been hers and, I think we that that combination is really helpful because we we both come at it from a different perspective and that it, it makes for a more interesting podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Like how how much structure do you have to the interviews? Do you do you script them? Or do you is it just completely uh, spontaneous or a little bit in between? So this was one of the learning experiences that I had 
early on. My my initial hypothesis was really naive. I thought if, if we just get interesting people on who have interesting things to say, then we'll have a a, a wide ranging random conversation, and then figure it out all out in editing afterwards. Mm-hmm. And that was a disaster. Um, you can't. I mean, I, maybe if a talented filmmaker could do that with enough time. Uh, but it really didn't work. And I don't think filmmakers do that either. I think filmmakers start with a, a storyline in mind and then, you know, craft it through the editing, but they don't go in completely random. So what I've learned to do is do, uh, do a bit more preparation in advance, uh, do some research on the individual, learn about, you know, what they've done, what they've, what things, particularly what things they're interested in. Um, and if it's someone I haven't met before, I always do a, a phone call in advance to just chat with them and get a feel for what what interests them. Because the things that interest them are the things that, that are going to come across the best in the in the recording. Right. Uh, so I do script out a storyline and questions. And sometimes I stick to the questions, um, but often we end up going off script. Yesterday, I went completely off script. Because the direction that um, that the the interviewee ended up taking, talking about uh, sort of her her diagnostic journey with her children and the emotional impact and everything else, was just far more powerful than the questions that I'd come up with. So I really sort of followed her, but I'm still glad I did the preparation. It still helped me come up with follow up questions. Um, yeah, and yeah, I, I love when that happens. So that kind of that goes off on a tangent and that that becomes more interesting than what you were going to talk about. That's, that's great when that happens. But the, the, the irony definitely is that the, that that works the best when you're the most prepared. So the, the yeah. more scripted I am in advance, the better prepared I am to go off script, uh, sure. but it works. Sure. That makes sense. All right. So then uh, a couple random questions about the podcast. What was, what has been the most uh, difficult part of hosting a podcast? Well, I think the biggest challenge has been learning the things that we've just been talking about. I, I don't think that I am a brilliant interviewer. Uh, I don't think I'll ever be at Terry Gross level um, interview skill, but I will say that, that by paying attention to those things, I think I've gotten a lot better at it. So I, so yeah, just the, interviewing skills, um, learning how to, you know, understand that individual to help, uh, get their story to come out. Um, has been the, the biggest, but also most gratifying challenge along the way. Do you ever go back and listen to your older episodes and think I could have done this or that better or differently or whatever, that kind of stuff? Uh, uh, occasionally. I don't yeah. like to do that because, of what you say it's um because i pick up on all of the things that that i could have done better mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and of course i hate the sound of my voice do, do you experience that <laughs> oh yes lots of times so i think you have a great voice but you probably think it's terrible and um, uh, yeah. i think everyone's that way I, I guess i've gotten used to it uh over the time but yeah i, I don't I, I wouldn't uh sit and listen to myself you know on purpose i guess all right. So then what, what, what's your favorite part about hosting the podcast? Like for me, uh, you know, obviously it's talking to the guests, but really the, the preparation, the research, I really enjoy that because I found that I've learned so many new things. Do you, do, what, what is your favorite part? 
Yeah, I would say that my favorite part is I genuinely like people, but I don't think that at my core, I am a people person as much as I'm as I am an ideas person in terms of what really mm-hmm. motivates me and drives me okay. um, in my life. Um, and so for me, the most satisfying part of this podcast has been finding people who are doing really interesting and important things that they may be obscure things. Um, but that's just that much better because then the podcast becomes a way to get their ideas, get the things they're working on out into the public place so that more people can, um, can hear about them and, and get ideas and, sort of have their own creative process. So so for yeah. me it's all about you know the you know the ideas and the interesting things that people are doing that that I can learn about but but that I can you know play a a, a role in sharing with the broader the broader world. Yes, absolutely. That's that's definitely what I'm trying to do as well. Dr. Jackson, I appreciate you talking about the things that interest you today and a little bit behind the scenes about the Lab Mind podcast. So uh, thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. Well, and thank you. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to, to when we can get you on LabMind as soon as we can get the scheduling to work. So really, really enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that too. Great big thanks to Dr. Brian Jackson. I've got a trailer for you right now of my interview with Dr. Jonathan Dudley. What are some other ways do you think that the use of molecular pathology will expand in the future? Well, um, one of the areas that I'm doing research on is right now. Okay. So, so my research is really focused on applying, developing new molecular assays and strategies to analyze pathology specimens. And typically when you do molecular analysis, analyses on tissue samples, it's typically in tissue that has known tumor in it. So you know the patient has cancer and you submit a chunk of cancer uh, to have the DNA extracted and you're looking for mutations that can predict response to treatment. So that's that's typically, that's the most common approach um, when you're doing molecular analyses on, on tissue samples. Uh-huh. But my, my research really wants to ask a different question, which is, does this tissue or cytology sample have cancer in it in the first place? And if so, what kind of cancer is it? So it's less about detecting mutations that could predict response to treatment in patients who you already know of cancer and more about asking, does this patient have cancer in this tissue sample to begin with? And if so, what kind of cancer is it? You can hear more from Dr. Dudley in episode number 22. This conversation with Dr. Jackson brings up a lot of interesting questions. For example, how do we balance standardization versus personalization of laboratory testing? What is the social responsibility of a healthcare system and a laboratory? And what about stakeholder capitalism versus shareholder capitalism? Dr. Jackson posts many articles on LinkedIn about these particular subjects. So if you're interested in those kinds of things, you can definitely connect with him there. I'll have links in the show notes to everything we talked about today, including to the LabMind podcast, which I highly recommend. Don't forget, you can follow this show on Twitter at People of Path. And while you're connecting with Dr. Jackson on LinkedIn, you can connect with me there as well. And if you know someone else who might be interested in these topics, please share the show with them. And together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and 
laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. And you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.